0: The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. We've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount, and today we close it. This is the most famous, probably the most famous sermon ever preached. Uh, most famous section of scripture in the New Testament. And then next week, uh, we are going to be what we're calling the Passion Series. And the Passion Series is going to be covering April, April 2nd, and then um, uh, Palm Sunday, uh, we're going to have a Good Friday service on the 14th, and then Easter Sunday is the 16th. And so we are going to be slowing down and spending this time of pause in the chapters of 27 and 28 in, in the Gospel of Matthew and really thinking about uh, the, com- the, the cross of Christ and his sacrifice as we lead up to his crucifixion and his resurrection. And so just a heads up for that next week, really want to encourage you to come back as we, as we slow down uh, move away from kind of the normal pace of our, of our teaching and, and really look forward to what we can learn, what God has us to learn uh, through his, his death and resurrection. And so uh, for today, let's turn to Matthew chapter 7. We'll start reading in, in verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and, and the way is hard that leads to life Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, "Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, "Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and, and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, "I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness." Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Well I've mentioned before that it's really interesting to preach a sermon of a sermon because that's what this is. So we preach a sermon of the most famous sermon that has ever been preached and yet is another thing to do what I'm doing today which is actually just to preach the conclusion of the most famous sermon that's ever been preached and so I want to set your expectations appropriately. This is the most famous sermon that's ever been preached. And in conclusion, in his final scene, in his final verse, right after Jesus is done preaching, we learn of the mood of the crowd. We learn of the impact that his sermon just had on the people. And in verse 28 and 29, it says this, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them with authority and not as their scribes. They were stunned. They were quiet. They were floored because Jesus spoke with an authority. What does that mean, he spoke with authority? Well, he put his listeners on the spot and he calls them to respond to very limited options. Jesus is telling them, okay, what are you gonna do? You just heard everything that I have said. He impressed upon them the seriousness of either obeying Jesus and his words or rejecting Jesus and his words. And he doesn't just say a nice thing and then they go about their way. Jesus confronts them and puts them on the spot and says, okay, what's your choice? Which way are you gonna go? This is one of the, one of the most common critiques the modern critiques of Christianity, which you may have heard is people saying, well, Christianity, I can't accept it, I can't believe it. It's just too narrow-minded. How could it be that of all the people that have ever lived, you're telling me that there is one man, a Middle Eastern man that lived in the first century, there's one man, and, and if I don't trust him or know him or believe in him, that, then, I, then, I don't, then I don't get to heaven, I don't get to be with God, that I don't have eternal life, and that, and that even more so then I'm, I'm, I'm led to destruction, eternal, eternal wrath and, and hell? Well, I can't. That's too narrow-minded. Well, I think from this passage we learn that, that Jesus invented the concept of narrow-mindedness. And not only that, he defines what it means to be narrow-minded. In this conclusion, if, if, if Jesus were asked a question, if a question was asked of him in this simple question, Jesus, how many people, how many people of all the people who have ever lived, that you have that has ever been created, that have walked in the face of the earth, how many people will actually find eternal life in heaven with God forever? How many? Jesus would reply with, Not many. Jesus would have us believe that true discipleship is a minority position. Isn't that stunning? By any metrics, by any measurement of of any dimension in a person's life, those who follow Jesus and therefore who enter into the kingdom of heaven is a relatively small amount I don't, I don't know what percentage that is. I mean, is it 49%? Because if he says most, well, is it, is it, is it 49% just barely below the, the you know, half? Is it one in every four? Is it 10%? I don't, I don't know what he means by, by not many when he says few people really follow the path of true discipleship and once are into the kingdom of heaven. Few. I don't know what the number is. There will even be many, according to Matthew 7:21, that will find themselves face to face with Jesus on Judgment Day. On, on, it says, "On that day. On the day, what is that day? Well, it's the day that we stand, every one of us stand before Jesus and, and are judged according to the lives that we live. And on that day, there will be people who are stunned to hear that they didn't have a relationship with God when they spent their lives thinking that they did. Isn't this terrifying? See, there are those in the church, Jesus would have us believe, who are very good at their doctrine, who are excited about Jesus, who do things actually with great power, who cast out demons, right? There will be people that are excluded from eternal relationship with Jesus, and it, they will be shocked by it. You know, after saying such a thing, I, I imagine that his crowd, his listeners at the close of this sermon, was just as quiet as you all are right now. What is Jesus saying? This isn't what I thought Christianity was about. Well, his point, I believe, is, is, to, is to not create doubt and insecurity, and that's not my point either. My point is not to make you feel very afraid. However, for those who are comfortable, I think Jesus is trying to, to make us uncomfortable. For those who are uncomfortable, Jesus is wanting to assure us and to comfort us and to show us a way to life where we can have assurance that we are with God. And I don't believe his point is just to create chaos in their hearts but to to rightly give us a way to evaluate our lives and how we live and to be honest with ourselves how are we really doing how are we really doing according to our confession of christ we say that we we know jesus we trust in him and and we follow him yes jesus you are my lord and i think jesus would have us stop and think evaluate and say how are you really doing then in your life and then in closing are you going to listen to him or not are we going to listen to Jesus or not? It's a great question to ask, and we ask it far too little. I ask people this often when I'm with them one-on-one in counseling situation, and maybe they're struggling with something in their life, they're struggling with a sin. And I ask them, "What do you think God is, is asking you to do right now? You know you, you know, you know Jesus, you know His word, and, and you have good instincts as it, come, as it relates to what God expects of us. What would you say that God would want you to do right now in this moment? And that person might actually tell me, well, I, I really feel that God is asking me to do this or that. And then I, my, my second question is this. Are you going to do it? You, you know what Jesus says and, and you, tell, you, you know what it looks like to, to walk with Him and to repent of sins and trust in Jesus. That's great. I'm really proud of you. Are you going to do it? I never get a no. I'll say that. I never get a no. Um... But I, and I hardly, h- hardly ever get a straight yes. I get, I get a lot of wells, you know what I mean? Well, or, or, I, get, uh, or I get what, you know, I get, always get the thing that, that makes me think of Yoda a lot, you know? The, you know, do or do not. There is no try, right? So I get a lot of well, I'm going to try. I'm going to try to follow him. I'm going to try to obey him. I'm going to try to do that. I thought we had a lot more engineers in here than, than that. But <laughs> thought i get a good response. And so Jesus says, do or do not, there is no try approach. And the way he does this is describing two ways to live. We see this in these four metaphors, these great metaphors he gives us. Each described in four metaphors, there are two things, each of them. Two gates, two trees, healthy and diseased, two, two verdicts, and two foundations on which a house is built. And so there are two ways to live. And, and what are they? Just simply, what, what are these two different ways? Well, the, way, the first way is the way of the immoral and the, and the, the irre, irre, irreligious person. You know, this is most likely the thing that we'd look to as we read this passage. The quickest observation in the text is there's a right way to live and there's a wrong way to live. That's clear that Jesus lays out. The irreligious and immoral people are are easy to spot. You know, they're the people who live their lives disobedient to the commands of Jesus. If we remember the Sermon on the Mount and we even just trace back a couple pages and look at all the commands of him, uh, just by looking at this, we might see the the immoral or irreligious person. This is a person that's sexually immoral, the adulterer, the the angry, those who have harbor bitterness in their hearts towards others. The dishonest, those who are stingy and, and, and irresponsible with their money. Those who retaliate evil for evil. Those who are overly critical. We look at the Sermon on the Mount and all the ethics of Jesus' teaching and we would see, well, well, the person who doesn't do those things, who doesn't listen to Jesus' words, that's the, that's the immoral person. That's the ir, 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 irreligious person. As Jesus details the commands of God's law. It's easy, it's easy to spot, well, who's on the path? that leads to life, and, and Christians are good at that, aren't we? I mean, we're good fruit inspectors, you know. We're looking at people's lives and seeing, like, well, do you really follow what Jesus has asked you to do? And, and so you're, you're an immoral person if you're not doing the behavior that he's asked you to do. There are people that just live the way they want to live. They're the ones who say, you know, the point of life is just to choose your, your best way. I mean, everyone should just choose their own path, and, and no one should tell the other person which way to live. And so our ethics are really, they come from within us and what we think is, is best for us. And before the Christian gets too comfortable in thinking that this passage is not speaking to the good people, it's not only the immoral and irreligious people that are called out, but also the religious people. And that's the second, that's the second way, the way of the religious person, the way of the religious and, and moral person. Let's look at the religious person in this passage. What do they look like? Well, the religious person has their doctrine right. They get it. They recognize that it's not only uh, that not, not only is there, is there a God, but that Jesus is the divine Son of God and the rightful King over all of creation. And yet, there are people on that day of, of judgment that Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. So, you have people that say, Lord, Lord, with great affection. People will call him out and say, I, I recognize who you are. You're the owner of all that there is, you are God. And Jesus will say, I don't know you. I never know know you. Eternal life. What is eternal life? What is it? Well, Jesus tells us in John 17, this eternal life, that they they would know you. He's praying to God His Father, that they would know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is about knowing Jesus. It's about having a relationship with Him. And so there's religious people that do really good things. Their behavior is great. They know their Bible and their doctrine. They They do good things for the church and even for the kingdom of God and Jesus would say but I didn't know you we didn't have a relationship they never had a personal relationship with God and Jesus is saying you see he's not saying this in this passage where you used to be a Christian what happened we used to know each other really well how did you drift off he doesn't say that he says I never knew you I never knew you so it's possible to know the Bible so well and yet miss the point of it all. It's possible to be incredibly active in Christianity and miss the whole point of it all. There'll be, there will be professed Christians in the church who are denied by Jesus. Does this scare you? It's supposed to scare us, I think. But it's supposed to be a, a dagger to the heart as we read this passage. It's supposed to, it's supposed to pierce. It's supposed to do that to us. It's possible to know the Bible so well and miss the whole point of it. I, and I know I'm, I'm, I'm scaring you, but I'm, I'm not trying to, so I'll, there is a point, point. let's get to it now, because I may never get you back if I keep going that way. If you read the closing passage at face value, you're going to miss the passage altogether. You're going to read it and think, okay, I get it, Jesus. Do good. Don't do bad. Stay on the straight and narrow. Thanks, I'm going to do it. I'm going to be a good Christian. I'm going to be a good person. But we have to see this in light of what Jesus has said in his whole sermon, in light of what the wisdom of God's Word has said to us. Jesus says, follow my words. We need to look at at all of his words and what he is saying. Is Jesus saying to us in this closing, okay everybody, we're done with the Sermon on the Mount. Choose good, don't choose bad, have a great life. Do you remember when Jesus said in in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5, he said, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Do you remember him saying that? And so if Jesus is telling us, well, okay, the the whole conclusion is this, there's a good way to live, there's a bad way to live, be a good person, don't be bad. Well, he would be handcuffing us, he would be harming us. What is he saying when he says, well, unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and Pharisees, you don't have any hope. He's saying if you base your life on rejecting God's law and doing whatever you want, you're going to miss heaven. But he also says, if you base your life on obeying God's word, And trying to be perfect you're gonna miss heaven okay Jesus I don't get it what do I do then how do you become a Christian how do you actually follow you and Jesus sermon can be summed up like this you can choose the immoral path or religious path either way you're gonna lose oh my goodness I love church so much (laughs) the Bible is so clear are you encouraged yet so what on earth is he talking about what on earth does it mean to be a Christian to be a faithful disciple of Jesus If you pay attention to the title of this sermon uh, in your bulletin, it says three ways to live. And that's not a typo, because I'm telling you now there are two ways to live, but there really is three ways to live. And this is what Jesus is getting at. There is a third way. It's not the religious route and the moral route. It's not the irreligious or relativist or immoral route. There's another way to live, and that's the way of the gospel. It's the third way. The third way to live is not so much about following a what. What do I do? What do I look like? but it's following a who. What it means to be a Christian is not about following a what, it's about following a who, and this is most clear in his final metaphor that he gives of the house that's built upon the rock. Two houses that look exactly the same. Two houses that, that had the same in, uh, code inspector come in. Two houses that have the same paint. Two houses that have the exact same square footage. Two houses that at their face look exactly the same. The moral person, the immoral person, What's the difference about them? The difference is upon what they are built. And that what is not a what, it is a who. One falls and one doesn't. The one that doesn't is because on, on not on how it was built, but on what it is built upon. It's built upon the rock. You see the, the, this metaphor of the narrow gate, which says enters through the narrow gate. He's not telling us a what, he's telling us a who. For Jesus is the gate. Jesus says, I am the gate. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father but through me. No one gets to eternal life but through me. I am the the key. I am the entry point. The healthy tree is a who rather than a what. For Jesus is the tree of life that nourishes the branches that abide in him. He says, I am the vine. You are the branches. If you're not connected to me, then you will not be nourished and you will die. But if you abide in me and draw your life from me, then you will have life and it will be eternal. The verdict of the accepted one, the one who is not cast out from the presence of God, is the verdict is acceptance is about a who rather than a what, for Jesus is the perfect worker of righteousness that pardons our sins. For Jesus says, depart from me, you doers of lawlessness. Well, well, we're all lawbreakers, so who, the who is Jesus who is perfect, and the house that is built on the rock is a who rather than a what. Jesus is the rock upon which we build our lives. And so Jesus does invite us in the close of his sermon, he invites us to live one of two ways, and it's not between the good people and the bad way. Jesus is not saying there's two kinds of people to live like, the good people, the bad people, choose the good people. He He is asking us and inviting us to live our lives of two ways. One way is where we are trying to save ourselves by our behavior, and the second way is in trusting in Jesus. Verse 22, verse 22 says this, and that's the terrifying verse that we, you know, no no one, this isn't anybody's favorite verse in the Bible, right? What's your favorite verse? I love, you know, I don't know the reference, but I love the part where Jesus says, I never knew you, you can go away now. What is that again? Yeah, it's Matthew 7, that's my favorite. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things? Didn't we prophesy? Didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we do mighty works in your name? We were doing it for you, Jesus. I never knew you. And so it's when we get to this day when we stand before Jesus, what will we say? What will you say? On that day, for every, everyone will become face-to-face with Jesus. We don't know when, but a day is coming where we will be judged by Christ. And what will you say when he says, why should I let you into my heaven? Why should I... Give, accept you into eternal life, why should I? And if we say, well, I, I, I'm a pastor, Jesus. He might say, I never knew you. You say, well, I've given my life to missions and, and helping the poor. And he would say, I, would, I never knew you. Well, I've been faithful husband and a faithful father and a great worker and a great contributor to our community. Well, I never knew you. I've been baptized. I even lead a, li- I lead a life group in my church. I never knew you. Then there are some that will say, well, I followed the golden rule. I treated others how I wanted to be treated. And Jesus will say, even still, I never knew you. What is it that matters? All that matters is where we build our house, our life, more specifically on, on who we build our life and our confidence. We'll build our life on our righteousness or We'll build our life on Jesus. We'll build it on our righteousness and say, okay, I know what God has told me to do. Now I, am good. I got to do all these things and I have, to, I have to do more good than bad in my life. And hopefully at the end of it all, God will look upon me with understanding and favor. And even though I've made mistakes, he will say, but you gave it a great try. Thank you for doing good work. Or we'll build our life on Jesus. When we, when we follow a what, We believe something that is so bad we believe this we believe that god that we god will give grace to us based on our good record we believe that we give god a good record and then he gives us good acceptance when we're following the what but when we build our life on a who we believe that god accepts us in spite of our record in spite of our imperfect and failed record and he gives us the perfect record of Jesus so that we will live the rest of our life for him in a pursuit of what he loves in a pursuit of obedience you see this passage this conclusion is Jesus is not inviting us to get more religion he's not inviting us to become better people the gospel is not that we go from being bad people to good people The gospel is about going from people who trust in what we can accomplish for God and going to people who trust in what God has accomplished for us. You see that? It's a a whole new way of living. It's a whole new way of looking at our life and about seeing our relationship with God. How do we we know that we built our life on Jesus? Let's draw some implications out of this as we we close in this passage. See, Jesus' conclusion is straightforward. It's good for us to evaluate and think. So how do we know? How do we know that we've built our life on Christ? Well, here, here's the first thing. One is that our obedience to Jesus will not be driven by our comfort, but rather our love for and trust in what he says. He says, narrow is the gate. You see, narrow is the gate. And you look at the gate, and it's like not a lot of people go in there. It's really small. You've got to maybe get down and to go through it. It's hard to do that. Remember going uh, spelunking. Right? I'm, I'm a spelunker. And, uh, no, I've been, I've been twice. Uh, there's not enough Xanax in the world to get me to do it a third time, <laughs> I that. I go to Peppersoft's Caves. You know, it's on the north side of, of Mount Lemmon or the Catalina Mountains. Peppersoft Caverns on the north side, and it's a cave that has this beautiful cathedral th- uh, ceiling. It opens up. When you get into the cave, it's magnificent. It's beautiful. It's really breathtaking. Um, it's spacious inside and, and, and really wonderful. There's only one way to get in, as far as I am aware. Uh, at least that's what they told me, those evil people. There's only one, one way to get in, and it's not a fun way to get in. Uh, I remember my first time going, and we come to the face of the mountain, and we say, okay, where's the cave? How do you get in? And someone points down, and they point to this little crack in the ground. <laughs> the only way to get in is actually to get on your belly, to lay down, and where well, your, your cheek is like on the ground, and you kind of like crawl through like where the, the weight of the earth literally is like on your back. And you crawl through and get into this. And and oftentimes there's a lot of moisture and even uh, as the moisture comes down the mountain and even if there's rain, even within uh, several days, within that little divot of when you crawl, it's filled with water. And so there's a point where you actually have to go underwater, don't knowing what's on the other side to get into the opening of this cave. And I'm thinking, I'm not going in there. (laughs) I'm thinking that's going to crush me. I don't know what's on the other side. It's, it'll squeeze me, it'll suffocate me. If I go into that little hole, I'm gonna die. I'd rather just stay up here. I'm gonna have a panic attack or something. How do we know we're, we're building our, our, our house on the life of Jesus? Well, he says, narrow is the gate. You see, you look at this, and it looks like it's, it's very small, it's very narrow, it might crush you, and you're afraid of going in. But when you go in, it's going to open up into a very wide and spacious place where there's beauty and freedom. You know, see, we look at that and we say, well, I, I, I'm not convinced and I'm not going through there. I'm going through the wide opening. I'm going through the big door. And we don't realize that that big opening in the cave, two steps in, fall, falls into a huge hole where we plummet to our death. But it's comfortable. We say, well, but this, this is what I know. It's, it's open, it's spacious at, at its appearance. And, and that makes me feel more comfortable. There'll be times when your decisions that you make because of your love for Jesus are not admired by others. Let me remind you of what this passage says. He says, most people will not build their life on Jesus and follow and go through that narrow opening. Most people won't. And so by definition, do you realize this? By definition, it means that the most of the decisions that you make in your life that are driven by faith in Jesus will be unpopular. Are you aware of that? So I think often we're surprised by that. I think often that when we suffer because of a life of faith, we are shocked. Well, shouldn't everybody understand? Shouldn't this be the wide way? And Jesus says, that's not how it works. Most people will not follow me faithfully. Most. And so that means by definition, most of what you do in your life in faith will be contested, will be mocked, will cause pain, will cause anxiety and fear It will cause distraction you will say to yourself is there another way and there are only two the narrow way and the wide way it's scary I don't know what's on the other side but it's it opens up and it's worth it it opens up and it's worth it you get through this hole that is scary and it's worth it I I know that I know that in the Sermon on the Mount I've already used a uh, Willy Wonka reference, but i got to do it again, but no video this time, I'm sorry. Do you remember when they are about to go into the candy factory and they go into this room? It's just a normal room with a long hallway. And in the further they walk down the hall, the room narrows and, narrows and narrows and they get to this little door. And the lady says, we're going in there? How are we going to get in there? He said, this is the only way in. And do you remember what happens when he opens the door and they go through? What is it? What's on the other side? A chocolate river. Yes! I mean, this is like, yes! She gets it from the mouth of babes, you know. And the other side, what is on the other side? It's, it's, it's paradise. It's paradise. But if we say, we're going there? Jesus, you've asked us to do what? We have to believe what? We have to make choices how? That's what it means to be faithful? You're crazy. I don't want to live a life of restriction and a life of pain and a life of, of, of sorrow. I don't want to be crushed in my life. Jesus says, well, this opens up. This way opens up to freedom. It opens up to eternal life. It opens up to space. There's only one way to get in. There is no other way. Do you trust Jesus like that? Enough to do what he has told you to do? Do you trust him enough and confident enough in his faithfulness and what he has said? And Do you believe him enough that you will actually put yourself in uncomfortable situations because you trust in him? You see, this is what I said. Our obedience in Jesus is not driven by our comfort. We don't do it because it's comfortable. In fact, the definition of it, as Jesus is telling us, is actually will be the opposite. What is the outcome of the people that were most faithful to Jesus? His faithful followers were killed, with the exception of one disciple. They were martyred. They they died the death of Jesus. And Jesus said, if you pick up your cross and follow me, then... You will you should expect nothing less than what, what I got, which was isolation and condemnation and, and ridicule. Many will not, your life will not be in danger, but what else is in danger? What are you afraid to give up? What comfort are you afraid to give up? Because you don't want to go and squeeze into that little opening. Whatever that is, Jesus is saying, I want you to evaluate your heart. What are you really trusting in? Are you still trusting in yourself? Or are you really following me? how do we get there? How do we get this? uh, how How do we have this faith? Well, it begins in knowing what he says and trusting in what he says that you're absolutely loved and accepted by the only person whose opinion really matters. But what will people think of me if I live that life? And what friendships will I lose? And Jesus says, you are absolutely loved by the only opinion that actually truly matters, and that's mine. And I call you precious. I call you my beloved. I call you my son, my daughter, my child remember he's a good father he is filled with goodness he fills us with his goodness But how do I know that that won't crush me well it may crush you it may crush you but I've overcome the world and on the other side that opening is good what's another implication we can draw out as we continue Well, even just looking through this passage right second is that we will give evidence of a life of Jesus living in us through the bearing of the fruit Of the Spirit false teachers can pretend to be holy they can do good works they can put on a good face but there's no life in them there's no life that's being that's nourishing a life of holiness the idea here is the evidence that we're building that evidence that we are actually building our life on Jesus and trusting in him is that we actually truly increasingly become more and more like him we increasingly manifest the the fruit of the Spirit and the life of the Spirit in us it's easy to profess Christ it's easy to say I trust Jesus I'm a Christian and yet it's another thing to actually do it, especially when the storms come. Because the storms come, when the storm comes and the lights are turned on, our, what we really trusted in is revealed and it becomes known. You know, these, these metaphors should make us think about, uh, not, it shouldn't make us think that there are two kinds of people that one person can't change and the other person, you know, that people can't change. There's two kinds of people and you're kind of put in these compartments and in these buckets and you can't change. These metaphors are not saying that if you're on the, the, the path that leads to destruction, that you can't somehow get on the path that leads to life. It, it doesn't mean that a diseased tree can't become a healthy tree. Jesus isn't saying that those who do not know Jesus can't ever know him. Or that those who have built their house can't move, right? He is saying that if you, if you change, and you can change, but if change is going to be real, it must be, it must be radical. If discipleship is going to be authentic, if you're going to build your life on Jesus and get off of a path that leads to destruction and into a path that leads to life. It's got to make you a whole new kind of person. Not just new behavior, but a new person altogether. New desires, new motivations, new ambitions, new loves, new hates, new devotions, new affections. Nothing short of a new creation, the very thing that God promises to create in us. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in our life that it actually gives us a new heart. It takes out that heart of stone. It gives us a heart of flesh that that has affection for God, that has a desire to love God. It has a desire to obey his word. It makes us new. It actually changes what drives us. We, should be, we, we must be people that are not just changing our behavior and say, God, there's been sins in my life that I really want to change and I'm going to try harder to change those things. But we must go to the source of His life that nourishes us, His power that dwells in us by His Spirit and trusting in Him continually. Nothing short of a new creation. Thirdly is that our relationship with Jesus must be personal, meaningful, and relational. Remember, this is eternal life, that they would know God, the true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is a relationship. Jesus says, I never knew you. It doesn't mean that Jesus had a bad memory, that he was unaware, that he forgot that he met them, but that there was never a relationship. What is true relationship? Well, it's where we grow in our love for another person, where we increase in our awareness of our sin and confess and repent of those sins often. It's where our devotion is not casual, but it's intentional. It's not based on comfort, but it's based on trust in his faithfulness. It's where we learn what blesses God, and we do those things. It makes it, it learn what mourns his heart, and we reject those things. Think about your Christian testimony for a second. You know what I mean? Is Think about, think about life before Jesus and life after Jesus. And what's the critical difference? If your Christian testimony is this. You know, before I knew Jesus, I sinned a lot. My life was really bad. And now that I know Jesus, I sin a lot less. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to belittle you, and, 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 and I'm not trying to make fun of your testimony, but if that's your testimony, you might not know Jesus. He might not know you. There might not be a relationship. If when you look at how God has changed your life, all you think about is, I'm better today than I used to be. You know, full-time ministry now. I've been my full-time ministry has been my vocation now for 15 years, and in my experience, I've encountered hundreds of youth, hundreds of youth that have grown up in the church and been baptized in the church, and they grow into adulthood, and then they say something like this: "You know what? It's just not for me anymore." I've experienced hundreds of adults baptized in the church and serving on a ministry team, and vowing their membership to the church, and participating in a Bible study, and and giving generously with their wealth, and sacrificing their time, and talent, and treasure, who have never met God personally, and therefore have never been known by God. They don't know the power of free grace. They have never given up a pursuit of trying to save themselves through their behavior. They have never given up the throne of their life and saying, God, you direct my life. I trust in you. You are my hope. You alone are the basis of my acceptance of the Father, not anything I have done. I've met hundreds of adults in the church who I wonder, have they ever really met Jesus? Narrow is the gate. You enter into relationship with Jesus one at a time. You think about this narrow opening. How many people can go in at a time? Well, one. I think the point of that is you can't get in on the faith of your parents. You can't get in on the faith of even your church. Your proximity to the gospel does not mean that you have yourself trusted in the gospel of God's grace. Being around Christian things does not mean you know Jesus. Having parents who love Jesus doesn't mean that you do. Do you know Him personally? You know, it doesn't have to be this, uh, I don't want to glamorize these dramatic, tr- you know, these dramatic testimonies. You, don't, you didn't have to be a former meth addict, to, you know, to know Jesus. You don't have to say, wow, I used to be just like, man, I did hard time, and now, like, Jesus rescued me from that. And you're like, what do we say when people have a testimony like that? We say, wow, that's a great testimony. I grew up in the church, and I've just loved him ever since. My testimony is no good. No, that's not it at all. But it is about like having, do you have a personal encounter with him? Have you met Jesus personally? Have you trusted him? Have you recognized the the pain of your sin, the guilt of your sin? They would say, you know, if I were still on that path of destruction, then I would have the full wrath of God's anger. I deserve hell. And yet Jesus rescued me from that, He died for my sins. And I came to a place in recognizing through my years of, of, of seeing the gospel and hear it being preached that finally that I was the sinner that Jesus died for. That if there was one person on the face of the earth and it was me, that Jesus still had to come and die. Would you say that? Do you know him personally? And lastly, we know we can that we really building our life on him is this our ultimate hope rests not in our record, but in Jesus' record. To know Jesus is to say this, you are Jesus, my Savior and Lord. And because you are Lord, there are no conditions to my obedience to you. And I'll follow you wherever you lead me. I'll give you whatever you ask of me. I will abandon all that you have asked me to abandon because you are worthy of nothing less. You're the Savior of my soul, the Redeemer of my life. You live the life that I should have lived and I failed to live it. You died the death that I deserve to die. And so we cry out for mercy how, how does Jesus how does he close the most famous sermon that has ever been preached well he invites us he invites us to take an honest look at our life and that's what I want you to do now as we close in this passage how are you doing are you pretending are you on the wrong path are you lost are you spending more time in your Bible but somehow you feel just disconnected from the heart and love of God And you feel like, maybe I don't know him as well as I thought. Would you evaluate your life? Would you really think deeply? Would you be as stunned as the people that were listening to Jesus that went quiet and said, wow, I really got to think about my life? And then he invites us to be corrected by what he has to say. What is he telling you today? What is he telling you? What do you feel like he's telling you? Listen to him. You could be the person. You could be the good person or the bad person. If you're the maybe you're the bad person, you're thinking I'm a sinner. There's no denying it. I have a past, Pete, that you have no. You don't even want to know. And I'm still on that path. I'm still on that path that the Bible say would lead to destruction. Or maybe you're thinking I'm the good person. You know, I've I've left that former life and I'm doing really good. And I love that I'm really good. And you know what? If I were honest, I would say that that is my identity. That's where my hope is. My hope is in being better than other people. Where does he need to move your feet today? In both of those ways, in both of those errors, and both of those paths are still on the path of destruction. Both of those paths are still trying to save ourselves. And he wants to put your feet on the path that leads to life, but trust in him. And he invites us into building our lives on him. Know where you are today and make the move. That's what Jesus would say. He says, know where you are and make the move. The hearers of this sermon were stunned because Jesus emphasized the importance of a response. It wasn't just, he wasn't just giving information. He was calling them to actually respond to his teaching. And we can never have a confrontation with God and leave the same way we were. Did you have a confrontation with God today where you were encouraged by his word, where you were stunned by his word, where you were humbled by his word? Well, don't leave here the same way you came in. Renew your, your, your commitment, your, your, renew your vow to God and say, I, have, I need to trust in you, Jesus. I've been trusting in myself. I am a Christian, and yet I have wandered from you. Where do you need to move? Maybe you need to trust in Jesus for the first time in your life. Maybe you would admit that I genuinely am afraid that if I were judged today by Jesus, he would say, who are you again? I never knew you. Because my relationship with him is not, it's not real. It's just in what I do. It's just in my behavior. I'm just pretending. it's the greatest news of all, then, because if that's you, then you are the perfect candidate for the greatest, the greatest redemption. You're the perfect candidate for the mercy of God. Because the only thing that we need to be saved is need. The only thing we need is to be a con- in a condition of 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 spiritual bankruptcy. You remember the first beatitude? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will inherit the kingdom of God. Wow. So I just need to be poor? What does that mean? Well, recognizing that we and ourselves have nothing of merit to earn God's love. When we repent of our sin, we turn ourselves to the grace of God. The gospel is for everyone, and for every day, and for every moment. To get the gospel is to turn from our self-justification and to rely on Jesus' record for a relationship with God. And when we go through that narrow gate, it opens up into breathtaking awe and beauty. And that is what it is to know and to trust in God. Let's pray.